0: Listener supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. It's chapter 14, um, verses 12 to 16 and 22 to 26. It's uh, the gospel. One of the one of the gospels that's used in the church for the feast of Corpus Christi, and it has within it then the institutional narrative of the Eucharist. There's all sorts of uh, complicated and interesting um, realities here in the gospel, but I think that it might be a good idea for us to start this reflection, maybe by um, sharing a reflection with from Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity. And uh, in 1903, she wrote a letter to the Abbe Chevignard And she says, Isn't the Eucharist the presence of God, who is the kingdom of heaven? It seems to me that to receive the Eucharist is to be in heaven already, here on earth. And so what happens then is we have kind of zeroing in and focusing on what the real core of this gospel is, From, from Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity, who had some amazing, um, spiritual and theological insights. She was, uh, she was a young girl. She died in the early part of the last century um at a very young age 24 25 something or maybe it was 26 something i um, very similar to to the age in, in which the little flower also um saint elizabeth was uh, was also a carmelite but whereas thérèse was in Lisieux, um elizabeth of the trinity was in dijon so we find that the, the object then, the, the real object of reflecting on Gospels concerning the institution of the Eucharist, of the body and the blood of the Lord, is to arrive at the conclusion that St. Elizabeth arrived at, arriving at the conclusion that what we're doing is we are encountering the, uh, the presence of the kingdom of heaven in the person of the Christ who is In him, of course, do we therefore share predestination to eternal glory. Um, So let's look at the gospel then, and and let's see if through this gospel we might be able to arrive at the very place we began, to arrive with the exclamation of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, um, that to receive the Eucharist, it seems to me, is to be in heaven already here on earth. For if we are united with Christ in his flesh and blood, then we are united with him for all eternity. And that it is, in, an, in a sense, the presence in our own lives of heaven here on earth. Now, the gospel begins on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Jesus His disciples said to Jesus, Where do you want us to go and to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and you will meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and say to the owner of the house which he enters, The master says, Where is my dining room in which I can eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished with couches all prepared. Make the preparations for us there." The disciples sent out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them and prepared the Passover here's where the first great issue comes up in the in the discussion of the biblical um, articulation of the institution of the Eucharist Matthew Mark and Luke are are presuming that the Last Supper was a Passover meal and that um, and that this is the story of the preparation for that Passover meal, now there's certain glitches in this story, and in in a lot of um, contemporary research about the Qumran community in of the Essenes, we can we can flesh out a little bit of some of the complexity that goes on in the gospel because John's chronology is different. Um, first of all, the idea of going to the city and you will meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. The only men who carried pitchers of water, they carried water in, in uh, flasks over their shoulders. But the women carried the the, uh, the pitchers and they carried them on their heads. Um, so to go into the city and meet a man carrying a pitcher of water, all of a sudden the Essene community becomes present in the narrative and that the fact that everything is already arranged for the disciples means that there is there is in some way shape or form a larger community at work here than simply the disciples and so that's one of the issues then what did the scenes have to do with jesus preparing the uh, the passover meal well was when was the passover meal and here's here's part of the part of the issue um, the the Passover meal was uh, was to be um, celebrated on the on the day before the actual feast of the Passover on the evening once the sun had gone down. In this narrative, in the in Synoptic's narratives, we get into kind of a difficulty, because after leaving the uh, the Passover meal, so forth, and as it shows here in the in the Synoptic Gospels and it says at the end here after the psalms they leave for the mount of olives well we know what happens in the mount of olives jesus is arrested and then he goes through this long um kind of kangaroo court kind of juridical process he has he's taken he's taken before pilate and he is betrayed and pilate then sends him to the high priest and the high priest send him back to pilate who sends them to herod and herod sends him back to pilate and so forth and one of the points that's made by some of the commentators is that just the logistics of that scenario are unrealistic. For Jesus to have gone through all of that in the course of a single night um, and then be set out by noon the next day to be crucified by noon the next day is is kind of logistically kind of probably not possible. And uh, what John says of course, is that the meal that is celebrated is the day before the Passover, so that there is an entire day then for uh, for not only the night, but the entire next day for Jesus to go through the tribulations of the trials and so forth, and then to be sacrificed um, at the time of the sacrificing of the Paschal Lamb for the Passover service. And, and this is, and in, in, even in the synoptic gospels, if it's a Passover meal, there is, seems to be no lamb present, which means that it's not really a Passover meal. So, that kind of complication, I mean, and, and the reason, the reason to go to St. Elizabeth of the Trinity first is to just kind of reestablish what we're talking about. Because when we come back to this, then it looks like a very kind of complicated chronological problem. And what does that complicated chronological problem have to do with our faith in the real presence of Jesus Christ? But it is part of the narrative, and therefore it behooves us to know that narrative. So that now we know that there is a complication. Um, That it would seem, for instance, that according to John, the meal was not a Passover meal, but it was a meal that in some ways um, resembled a Passover meal, And it is also um, the prerogative of the priest in the Essene community to do the blessing over the food and to designate what the food is and what it is to be. And so this is another factor favoring kind of John's understanding that it is therefore not a Passover meal, but Jesus as the high priest still in some way um, is able to designate in a ritual sort of way what the real meaning of the bread and the wine truly is. So we could say then that with the with the synoptic gospels, that if it were a Passover meal, um, it 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 would have been actually taken place after after um, the after the after the actual Passover itself, and chronologically that really doesn't work. So probably John's chronology is true, and uh, liturgically we follow. Liturgically we tend to follow the uh, the Synoptics because it it creates the sacred triduum. It creates the sacred the sacred, you know, days that leading up to the feast of Easter. And it's able to do. It's the same reason, for instance, why we take Luke's interpretation of the of the ascension um, rather than rather than John's, or And because it's able, we are able then liturgically to realize it so that it isn't just a simple um, mimicking of the historical events. It's taking the historical events and putting them into a liturgical setting so that the whole Christian community can participate in some way in the deeper meaning of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So that being said, and, and moving moving then on beyond the controversy of the chronology of the supper that in which the Eucharist was, was instituted, then what comes is the most essential part of the gospel, and that part of the gospel which says, As they were eating, he took some bread, and when he had said the blessing he broke it and he gave it to them. Take it, he said, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had returned thanks and gave it to them, and all drank from it, and he said to them, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is to be poured out for many. I tell you solemnly, I shall not drink any more wine until the day I drink the new wine in the kingdom of God. Here is the core and the center of the whole sacramental life of the disciples of Jesus here we have in a very profound and a very important way that we are privy to and we have the that we have the great possibility of being united to Christ in his flesh and in his blood and that in so doing the life of Jesus Christ is within us and it is within us flesh and blood it is within us in the depths of our souls it is in in us, and it permeates the whole personhood of those who participate in it. It's an enormously significant reality. For here we go back then once again into the Old Testament, which is so important for us, and we go back and we come to understand that, in for instance, in the Hebrew world, they 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 would never. They would never take the blood of an animal even into them because they believed that blood was the life force of a creature and to take that blood inside of themselves was to participate in the life of that creature. The blood that was mattered to them was the blood of Abraham and it was the blood of abraham that uh, flowed in their veins therefore abraham lived in them and they lived in abraham the jerome biblical commentary is very adamant about this abraham is israel and israel is abraham and uh, and so they understand the connectivity between the present generation and the primordial ancestor of, of Judaism who is abraham And they believe that since the blood of Abraham flows in their veins, Abraham himself is alive. It is the fulfillment of the covenantal promise of God to Abraham at the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. Your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. In other words, you will have so many descendants that your bloodline will never die out. And as long as it does not die out, you live. And so it is in a very primitive sort of way a promise of immortality. Well, this same kind of promise then comes to us in this gospel here. Take it and eat, for this is my body. Take this and drink, for this is my blood. And there he is doing simply that which the disciples intuitively and intuitively know what he's doing because they're so sensitive and so aware of those kinds of things. We know that if we go back to John 6 and Jesus, the bread of life discourses that Jesus gave in the synagogue in Capernaum, that when we go back there and we hear him say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. Um, what is life? What does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you take my body and take my blood, then you have the way, the truth, and the life inside of you. You, it is part of who you are. And you are united with me that where I am, you also might be. Um, this, this is one of the great driving dynamic forces of the gospels this incorporation of the of the people of the covenant into the person of christ exactly not exactly in a more profound way than the people of the old covenant were were integrated you know into the life of abraham and abraham into their life and so too we now are integrated into the life of Jesus. And as St. Elizabeth of the Trinity tells us, is it not heaven already here on earth? If we are, in fact, united with Christ, isn't that what heaven is? And, and, the, and, the, and, and of course, that's what the dream is, not that not that heaven is in some way, shape, or form. Um, some we, we live in Christ. How we do that, nobody knows. Nobody knows that um what we do know is that there is a union between ourselves and Christ who is one with the Father and the Spirit our eternity our eternity is to be taken into the life of the living God and uh, and to be part of that as not as being reabsorbed into a source but as being as being the the persons that we are sharing in the vastness and the greatness and the depths and the love and the joy that is God Himself, so that yes, Elizabeth is right. How does this happen? How does it come about? Take and eat. This is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is to be poured out for many. And uh, and so. It is at this point in the gospel, in Mark's gospel, but every gospel has in some way, shape, or form the idea of the incorporation into the body and the blood of the Lord in, in a Eucharistic way in order that we might then um, be able to, uh, to share the life of God for which we were created and which is the ultimate fulfillment of our human existence so that when jesus now is doing this this is my blood the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many we we know there's all sorts of there's all sorts of uh, memories for the hebrew people in this they knew for instance that you know M- moses would spread the uh, the blood of goats and 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 bulls to sprinkle the people to let them know, you know, that the covenant was a covenant sealed in blood. Many, many societies do this. You know, you know, you have among the Native Americans the blood brother idea and all of this kind of thing. You, you intermingle your blood and you're then part of each other's lives. This is not something, you know, that just comes out of nowhere. This idea that, that, that uh, giving blood is a source of life. Um, we we know we even know that as a medical reality here. How many times are they pleading? You know, the medical community that we come forth and that we donate we donate blood um, in order to save someone's life. That our life will go into another person and save them. Um, so the idea is not totally foreign in the whole cultural phenomenon of humanity. We know that this is so. We know that somehow or other the intermingling of the blood is somehow or other an intermingling of life. And, uh, and so we have here now the proclamation that we are being brought into a covenant, into a new covenant, into a new committed relationship with the Lord in which we share his life with him. And then the Gospel goes on to say, after the Psalms had been sung, they left for the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, of course, then, is where the tragedy takes place, the betrayal of Judas and and so forth. Um, The modern attempts to kind of, uh, you know, resuscitate uh, the reputation of Judas— is uh, in some way, shape, or form kind of a futile kind of a thing when Jesus himself said it were better for that man had he never been born. Nevertheless, it's not our place to to put him in hell, and it's not our place to make the final judgment on him. The Lord himself seems to have done that, and the Lord himself, of course, will do that, um, whether we want to find him guilty or innocent or forgiven or not forgiven. And uh, and so what happens then is that in that night that transpired that the Lord himself now, according to Luke's gospel, goes into his agony and begins to understand. And the question is then, you know, as he goes into the Mount of Olives, what is this on his mind? What What is this that has kind of built up to all of this first of all he seems very dispassionate in the beginning he knows what's coming but he says now you go and you do this obviously there's been some kind of organization around him because the uh, you just don't go up to somebody and say I want to use your living room for Passover um, and the whole idea the, the interesting thing about the man carrying the pitcher of water um, draws into it a custom from the Essene community exactly as the dating of the meal um comes to us from, uh, is possible for us through through an an Essene calendar that ceased to be used in 70 AD. But whatever that issue is, the focus is the same. Jesus has dispassionately, in a way, made all of the preparations for what is to transpire. We know that after he is arrested, he does not defend himself. We know that probably he could have defended himself, but in in order that all things be fulfilled, he did not. And so he dispassionately prepares a meal to be eaten, whether it is the Passover, which it probably is not, but it is necessarily in anticipation of the Passover, a ritual meal. And in that, while they are eating, and of course there's a certain... um, Um, formula for how the ritual meals were eaten and so forth. And they had so many cups of blessing and so forth. But whatever it is, Jesus himself then designates. And this is another thing, You know, we we get into a debate, for instance, with other Christians sometimes, or they will challenge us sometimes and say, why do you believe in the body and the blood of the Lord? The Eucharist is really the body and the blood of the Lord. Do you believe that Jesus was also a a vine and, and that you are a branch? Do you believe that you're kind of a plant instead of a person because of what Jesus said? And that's a misunderstanding, actually, of the whole of the whole context of these, the Hebrews could not use representational language, but they could use allegorical language. They could create allegory, in other words, they could create imagery to make a point with words, and uh, and the vine and the branches imagery with words. But the designation of the body and the blood of the Lord um, is is not allegorical language. It's not grammatically structured as allegorical language. And, uh, and in, the, uh, and in the, the bread of heaven um, um, discourse in, in John's gospel, there is no allegory involved and he doesn't it's interesting because he doesn't in, he doesn't refer to himself um, as the, you, unless you, you uh, eat the body of the Son of Man and drink his blood, that would make no sense to say that to the Hebrew, because the body of the Hebrew was a composite reality made up of both flesh and blood. And Jesus, in order to distinguish the fact that there is here two elements, he himself uses the word flesh. And in John's Gospel, that's exactly what John says in John one fourteen, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us that it was it was not body but flesh which is which is a much more concrete much more um significant powerful word to be used also in the the uh, the word the the word for for bread that jesus uses in the institutional narratives is the same word that is used for bread in the feeding of the 5000 it, there is there are different words for it, but the one word that Jesus uses for his flesh and that, he, that he used in the Gospels for the bread of the feeding of the five thousand is the same word intending to mean that this what happened with the five thousand was actually a prefiguration of the eucharistic of the Eucharistic miracle and so once now he has done this, stop and think what this means to these people. To, for instance, in John's Gospel, but also here, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. Um, stop and think of the power of what that says. Stop and think of the fact that Jesus says, I am going to enter into you in flesh and blood and soul and divinity. I will be in you, you will be in me, of me. We together will be one we will be one and we cannot do that without a covenant without a commitment and in that commitment then you enter into the great company of all of those who share the same privilege with the lord jesus christ who share the same reality with the lord jesus christ who are able to have him live within us and uh, and and we in him which as elizabeth of the trinity informs us as the beginning is the beginning of of life, the beginning of eternal life. It is the presence of heaven. And I think that too often that that's too difficult for us to, to deal with. We want heaven to be something in the far distant future, and we want heaven to be something that's, you know, spectacularly phenomenal for us. We, but, but basically it will be all that. We're sure of that. But basically, it is founded on a relationship between Jesus Christ and ourselves, a relationship that is not just of the spirit, but also of the body, also of the flesh, also of the blood. That the relationship with us is a throbbing, real, organic relationship that draws us and binds us into the life of another and he into a life of ourselves. We experience and can experience this in kind of um, um, preliminary ways. Our human experiences are all oriented toward toward um, helping us to understand what the nature is of our relationship with God. We we somehow in our human relationships, our human love in in the in the marital act in the marital relationship, all of those things are prefigurations of how the human person is constituted and how he is constructed in order to be one with the God who has created him, the one who has made him from the very beginning a participant in his being, and the one who draws him ever closer to a process of divinization in which he dwells within the living God. And that the actual means, once we have been in, once we have been conceptually formed to understand and to desire this kind of union with Jesus Christ, once that happens, then He concretizes it for us in this passage in the scripture. He concretizes it for us and He makes it real within our lives so that what we do not understand and what the young girl from Dijon was able to perceive is that we have now entered into the deepest and the ultimate mystery of life. The reception of the body and the blood of the Lord is entering into the deepest and the most profound realization of what it means to be a human person. And that's why it must be guarded and protected from becoming pedestrian. That's why the German synodal way is so sad and so unfortunate. Not something to encourage anger, but, but, but sadness over that. It is a total lack of the understanding of what this is all about. And it is therefore contrary to sacred scripture. We ourselves cannot afford to be so cavalier or so pedestrian. We live in troubled times, and let us therefore enter deeply into the mystery of the presence of the body and the blood of the Lord. And let us do so with deep conviction and with deep, deep commitment to the living out the life that we have in union with Christ. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations and Faith are available at saintgabrielradio.com.